seated. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the morning uh, as we're starting uh, a new series today. Uh, my prayer is that you would uh, be with us as we uh, study and uh, learn more about your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. It's in his name we pray. Amen. A boy uh, was sitting on a park bench, and uh, his hand was kind of resting on, the, on an open Bible, and he was just playing on celebrating loudly his praise to God. You know, hallelujah, hallelujah, God is great, and he wasn't worried if anybody heard him or not. Well, this man walked by, and he was one of those kind of uh, cynical guys, sarcastic guys, and he had just read a, a couple kind of books and wanted to kind of show his enlightenment to this young boy. And so he comes up to this boy and says, what on earth are you so happy about? And the boy said, do you have any idea how great my God is? He said, I was just reading about how he parted the Red Sea and led the whole nation of Israel right through the middle of it. Our God is awesome. And the enlightened man kind of laughed lightly and he sat down next to the boy. He said, let me open up your mind a little bit. I just read this article, read this book, and all of that story can be easily explained. Modern scholarship shows that the Red Sea in that area was maybe only 10 inches deep at the time. And so Israel could have easily just waded across, you know, boy, you've got this all wrong. And the boy just kind of put his eyes down for a minute and the confident kind of enlightened, arrogant man began to walk away. And before he could even, even walk away, the boy started praising again. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. God is so good. And the man came back and said, what on earth are you so happy about? And the boy said, God is even greater than I thought. Not only did he lead the nation of Israel through the Red Sea, he topped it off by drowning the entire Egyptian army in only 10 inches of water. Right? <laughs> there are times that you just can't rob someone of their joy. Uh, there are times when you just cannot rob someone of their happiness. And while that is true, I would not say it's true of our current culture. Right? Every year there's a world happiness report that is published uh, that kind of studies and explores happiness around the world. And if you've ever wondered about this at all, just so you know, Finland for multiple years in a row is statistically the happiest nation on earth. Finland, right? I, I don't know or understand it, but while the report is very interesting, what I find even more interesting are the questions they ask to put this report together. The questions that they ask their people about, man, we want to get an answer of this question from you, and we can kind of determine, based on your answers to these questions, how happy you are. And so the questions are go to things like social support. So the question is, if you were in trouble... Do you have relatives or friends that you can count on to help you whenever you need them? Social support. And I don't think any of us would find that at all surprising that those with great amounts of social support that can answer that question, yes, if I'm going through a hardship, if I'm going through a difficulty, I know family and friends that are going to be there for me no matter what. I, I think that, that we all understand that that leads to a happier life. I think it also shows why during the pandemic, our happiness has taken a bit of a hit. right? Because during the pandemic, we ended up separated from our social support and our social net. And so I'm not at all surprised during the pandemic that people rated their happiness as less. So it's social support. It's freedom, right? Interesting topic on Memorial Day, but 
Are you satisfied or dissatisfied with your freedom to choose what to do with your life? Right? And they said, man, this goes directly to a person's happiness. And this is embedded in our, in, in our American culture that we are free to kind of choose our own path. What makes us happy, the pursuit of happiness, right? We're kind of free to choose to pursue whatever that is. And they, they have tied a general sense of happiness to that trait. That when people feel freedom, when they feel free to pursue the life they want to pursue, they're happier. Generosity. Question, have you donated to charity in the last month? Simple question, right? But this is a Christian ethic, but they found that it's also a human ethic that spans the entire world. That those that are generous, all right, financially and with their time and with their talents, those that are generous tend to be happier. The last one, this one might surprise you, perception of corruption. Do you have a feeling that the deck is stacked against you in some way by some corrupt force, either government or the company that you work for, or life circumstances? Do you believe that for whatever reason, it's impossible for you to get ahead, or it's very possible if you work hard and are diligent, you can get ahead? Which of those two things do you believe? And you can see how your answer to that would directly impact your happiness, and none of those surprised me at all. That when you kind of talk about a person's social support, their sense of freedom, their sense of corruption, that, man, the, the, the sky is the limit for me. There is no kind of corruptive force keeping me down. Uh, uh, generosity, all of those things, I think, have a direct impact on our happiness. It's the omission that I find interesting. There's not a single question asked about a person's faith. Faith is rarely mentioned, only in a negative way, but faith is rarely mentioned in the report at all. And I think that faith, I want to argue today that on this Memorial Day weekend, faith, especially in Jesus, has a lot to do with our happiness and a lot to do with, more importantly, our joy. So let me set up the series again just for a minute. Uh, several weeks ago, a friend of mine forwarded a series of kind of tweets by theologian and pastor Tim Keller, and Tim Keller is absolutely brilliant. And the tweets were about what makes Christianity unique? What are the belief systems we hold that are different from the rest of culture or different from the other world religions of, of, of our time? What makes us different? And as soon as I read it, I was like, oh, this will preach. This will preach right? It's like when I hear a good illustration or a story, I'm like, oh, that'll preach. I, I'm, I'm filing that away, right? This will preach. And so on this week one, uh, I want to show you what Tim Keller said in his tweet, and here it is up on the screen for you. Christianity offers a contentment and joy not based on changing circumstances. Christianity offers a contentment and joy not based on changing circumstances. So let's talk for just a minute about the nuanced difference, because it is nuanced, the nuanced difference between happiness and joy, because there is a little bit of a difference. That happiness is a feeling of contentment and peace that comes from outside circumstances. All right, if you look at the root word, happiness, you can remember it this way, is based on our happenings. And as you might imagine, happiness, because it's based on our happenings, happiness can be quite 
fickle, all right? I had uh, an experience a few weeks ago where I walked outside to leave for work in the morning and it was absolutely gorgeous. Depending on how you define gorgeous, for me, it was 68, not a cloud in the sky, and I got in my car and I started driving to work and uh, before I even got to work, I called Cheryl up real quick. I said, You've got, just step outside. Just, just take a step out. It is gorgeous. You know, you know when all of a sudden you're like evangelizing the weather, right? You've got to just step outside. It is beautiful. It is gorgeous. You're going to love it. And, and, and that, that's the way the morning went. And I got to work and I worked. By the time I came home for lunch, it was rainy, cloudy, and nasty. And I stepped out at lunch and I didn't call Cheryl. You know what I did? I stepped outside. I was like, Illinois! You, you right? But I think that that can be a good description of basing our happiness on our happenings, on our circumstances. That one minute, things can seem to be going up and to the right and everything's good, and then the phone rings, right? The conversation takes place. The memo goes out that the company is downsizing. The stock market comes down. A pandemic hits. I've told you this story before, but I remember being at a pastor's conference, and I I can be somewhat obtuse when it comes to the news. This was uh, at the very, very beginning of March, end of February, beginning of March. And I'm sitting in this pastor's conference, and the pastor is uh, up on the stage, and he's talking, he's like, you're going to want to pay attention to this COVID thing. I'm like, COVID thing, right? I was totally obtuse. He's like, this is going to affect our churches. They affect our churches. And I had Cheryl and the kids with me, and we went to Indianapolis. Uh, We were in Indianapolis for this conference, and on one of our breaks, we went to the kids' museum. There wasn't hardly a person at the kids' museum. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, what what am I missing? And I turned on the news, and I found out what I was missing, right? And all, all of a sudden, the world changed. But that's exactly how it goes. You're up and to the right. You're learning pastoral practices. You're worshiping. And all of a sudden, some guy gets on stage. He's like, COVID. And all of a sudden, the world changed, and it becomes bleak and dreary. Now, I think it's important to remember, because sometimes this gets misunderstood. It is important to remember that God is not opposed to you finding happiness in happenings. As a matter of fact, the Bible talks a lot about if you're getting married or having a child or being promoted, if good things are happening in your life, it is a good thing to celebrate. Our God is a God of celebration, right? Read the Bible. He throws parties for nearly everything, right? Our God is a God of celebration, so he is not opposed to your happiness at all, but he understands there is something better and more lasting, and that is having our joy and our contentment and our happiness based not on our changing circumstances, but based on our unchanging Savior, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it is possible through faith in Jesus to have a sense of joy and hope and peace that goes beyond our circumstances, even in weeks like this one. So I want to share with you a few few points here. I've got three. I'm going to try this real preaching thing on for a minute. All right, three points. They don't start with the same letter, unfortunately. But um, things that I believe Jesus will do in us and through us to bring us a sense of contentment and joy and peace. Here's the first thing we believe through our faith. Our bad things will turn out for good. Our bad things will turn out for good, and that gives us joy. 
This is found in Romans chapter 8. Um, some of you that have uh, been in our church for a long time know that like a lot of times if someone comes to me for encouragement or to talk with me, so, sometimes one of the things that I will kind of write on the prescription pad sort of thing is read Romans 8 every day this week. When someone's like, man, I'm discouraged or I'm depressed or whatever, I'm like, all right, you know, I don't have all of the answers, but one thing I know is Romans 8 will not bum you out, right? Romans 8 will encourage you. You're not supposed to have favorite uh, children and you're not supposed to have favorite verses. I understand that. Romans 8 is close to me. Romans 8 is the monster of, of, of the faith and it is absolutely encouraging. Here's what it says. Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have been first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is not seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope, for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know, here it is, eight, verse 28, underline, highlight, star, copy in your journal, right? We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that we might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So I think this is important, right? The first thing he does in Romans 8 is he gives us a paradigm for understanding why the world is the way that it is. And on weeks like this, whenever there's a national tragedy, and, and you can kind of go back to a hundred different tragedies, or when you're personally going uh, through, through a personal tragedy, this is a question that people ask. Why does the world operate the way that it, that, that it does? And Paul teaches us. He says creation has been subjected to frustration. Another word he uses is to decay. And this is going all the way back to the book of Genesis. And in the first two books of, of Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth. And for those first two chapters, there is no frustration, if you can imagine that. There is no decay. The first two chapters of Genesis, it was perfect. And I think that everyone has a different definition of what perfect is. For some, it's the mountains. Others, it might be the ocean. For some, it's dessert, and for others, it's salty food. For some, it's time spent with others, and for others, it's solitude. We all have a different perspective on what perfect is, but we all agree on this. Perfect is frustration-free. 
And we know it didn't stay that way for long, just two chapters in. Sin enters the world through Adam and Eve, and now there's frustration. And now there's decay. In other words, because of that sin, the world does not work the way that it should. There is hardship and suffering and difficulty. Paul says in Romans that even the world itself is reacting to this reality with natural disasters. Things do not work the way they should. And you just have to look at Texas this week to understand why, why did that happen? The world does not work the way that it should. And he gives us an expectation. This is the expectation. There will be groaning days in this world. You ever have a groaning day? And sometimes it's mild where you wake up and you just don't want to go to work or have that meeting because you just, God kind of laid it on your heart. This thing's not going to go well. And other times the groan is deeper. This treatment, this appointment, this conversation, this season, there are groaning days. And he gives us a perspective that first of all, we're going to talk about this more in a minute, but the groaning days will not last forever. Amen? We'll talk about this more, but these present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In other words, he says, liberation is coming. Salvation is coming. Glory is coming. Someday, the book, of the, the, the book says, our groaning will turn to laughter. So he gives us a perspective. And he gives us two promises. The first promise is one of help. That through the spirit of God, as you have these groaning days, you are never alone. Instead, you are empowered and equipped and aided by the spirit of God who rose Christ Jesus from the dead to live the life he has called or allowed you to live. That's the first promise. The other promise is this. He will work all things for good. He will work all things for good. Now, I did a deep, intensive Greek study, and the word all means all. Not some, not a few, not every once in a while. All things for good. And people have been trying to make sense of two truths that seem like they're in competition with one another for years. And the first one is like, God is good, but my circumstances are bad. And they try to marry those two two things together. And usually they come up with one of two answers. One is, well, God must not be good, right? If the understanding is that God is good, but my circumstances are bad, maybe God's not good. Maybe he exists, but he's not good because my circumstances are bad. Or they say there is no God, but there is a third option. Those are not the only two options. The other option is this resurrection savior, this resurrection God that invades our groaning, that invades our tragedy, that invades our sorrow, and he offers help and redemption. That is how you marry these two two ideas, that God is good, but my circumstances are not good. How do you marry them? A resurrection God that invades your suffering, that invades your hardship that invades your difficulty. And he promises someday to bring victory over all of these issues for eternity. But he says today, I will invade the mess of the garden and I will cause something beautiful to grow. And through this groaning day, the spirit says, I will develop your character. I will cause you to look more and more like Jesus. I will do things through your groaning that you never even dreamed were possible. 
our bad things can be made good through our resurrection savior. And so when you're faced with that man, I don't know how to make sense of these two truths. God is good, but my circumstances are bad. You don't have to reject God, right? You don't have to categorize God as something that he's not, which is bad just because your circumstances are bad. It's a little self-involved, honestly, right? You can engage in the third option that my good God is invading my bad circumstances and he's gonna do something good. He's gonna bring something good and he will never ever leave me alone. All right, so that's the first point. It's the longest one, all right? So the second point is this. Our good things, so our bad things can be made good. The second point is our good things can't be taken from us. All right, let's look at this text, Ephesians 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Here you can underline this. In Christ. For he chose us, underline, in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will and to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. Underline, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us, right? He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under, and, and under Christ. So, there are certainly, right, nobody would ever deny this, there are certainly external blessings in this life. Right? For instance, a good car can be seen as an external blessing. So my senior year of high school, uh, I bought a 1988 Grand Marquis. I love this vehicle. If I could have figured out how to get oxygen and HVAC into the trunk, I would have lived in there, right? <laughs> and I, I could have lived in there. This car was massive. And I love this car. And I was driving one day in the backwoods of Michigan. And all of a sudden, the gas pedal depressed to the floor and got stuck. I'm trying to lift it up. The gas pedal is just stuck. And I'm going faster and faster and faster in the middle of nowhere, Michigan, thank God. And finally, I had to drop the car out of gear. And just like that, my beautiful Grand Marquis was no more. And a lot of us know that external blessings can come and go. We've already talked about some of that. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about spiritual blessing in Christ. That not a single person can take from you. And he talks about things like holiness in Christ. That in Christ, your and my sins are forgiven. And in Christ, we are declared holy. That our culture right now, we love to declare people unrighteous. You hold that political view. You hold that view. You hold this view. You are the unrighteous. It's kind of what we do right now. But in Christ... In Christ, you are forgiven. And in Christ, you are declared holy. Relationship. That in Christ, you are able to have the relationship with God that you were created to have. And there is no news story. 
There is no tragedy, there is no difficulty that can separate you from the love of Christ, that in Christ you have this relationship, the relationship you were designed to have, that I believe God has placed inside of you as part of your creation, in addition to your gifts and your, and your abilities, God has placed inside of you a desire for him from the time that you are born. And this relationship is life and light to a weary soul, and no one can take it from you. There is no circumstance, there is no difficulty, there is no hardship that can take your relationship from you that you have with Christ Jesus, the promise of eternal life. No one can take away your hope in Christ. That we have that someday Jesus is going to return with fire in his eyes and a sword in his mouth and a tattoo on his thigh that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is going to come and he is going to make all things new and all things right and all things holy and all things good. And that leads me to the last truth in Christ. Our good things can't be taken away from us. And the last thing is the best things are yet to come. So our bad things will be made good. Our good things can't be taken from us. And the best things, they are yet to come. Here's how John says it. See what great love the Father has lavished on us? That we should be called children of God? And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, we are now children of God. And, that, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. This is talking about the transforming relationship of family. That you might notice in your, have you ever noticed in your family that all of a sudden people start to look and sound like each other in your family? Same mannerisms, same figure of speech. You start loving the same things. You start caring about the same hobbies. This just kind of happens in family. They all start to look like each other in, in, in a family. And what he's saying is we're children of God. And as children of God, we are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. We are looking more and more like him. So being welcomed into the family. This is not just like a, a, a kind of throwaway line. That, oh, in grace we're welcomed into the family. No, this is the ball game. Being welcomed into the family is everything, and it happens through grace. And through grace, we are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And it happens naturally that just being around the family starts to transform you. So just hanging around Jesus, studying him, worshiping him, praying, it just happens naturally. But it also, Paul, or John says here, happens intentionally. That through the Spirit, we join the work of the Spirit to rid our life of habits and hang-ups that don't look or sound much like Jesus. And so as we get around Jesus, just naturally we're being transformed and we're becoming aware of the things in our life that don't look or sound much like Jesus, and we join the Spirit in his work to rid our lives of those things. Our culture has this attitude about joy and pleasure, that it needs to be pursued in everything, and it changes with each generation. Like for one generation, wealth was the thing. For another generation, success has been the thing. And our current generation, experiences and leisure is the thing. But this text reminds us there is no greater pursuit than Jesus. And there is no one better for you to look like than him. This text is referring to this time when Jesus will return 
And when he returns, we will see him face to face. And in that moment, because right now we're on this earth and Jesus is in heaven and we have the Holy Spirit and we have the church and we have each other, but everybody would say that, man, seeing Jesus now is different than when we will see him face to face. And in that moment, when we see him face to face, the purifying process will be perfected. And just the power of seeing him in that moment we will become fully like him. We've already rid ourselves of a bunch of stuff. We've already grown a lot to look like him. But in that moment, we will be fully like him for all of eternity, and that's awesome. But we aren't the only thing that's going to be perfected in that moment. The heavens and the earth will be perfected. The groaning and the hardship will end. What has been impacted by sin will be restored. And it will be like what it was like in the garden. And we will know God perfectly. And we will know each other for the first time perfectly. And we will enjoy this earth perfectly. And we will live forever. So this gives us great joy, hope, and peace. Knowing that we remain faithful today. Understanding that day is coming. So in Christ, you can see how our joy is not built on our changing circumstance, on our, on our happenings. Our joy can be built on the person of Jesus Christ because in him, our bad things turn out for good. Our good things cannot be taken from us and the best things are yet to come. And so I hope that you're encouraged. I hope that you're receiving joy, hope, and peace from the truth that is in Jesus because this is our faith. This is what it looks like. This is what it means to travel with Jesus through a week like this one where sorrow and groaning and difficulty and hardship are present in in our whole community and in our nation. It's just groaning has been present. But we have this treasure in in a jar of clay right now. It says our bad things can turn for good. Our good things cannot be taken from us. And the best things are yet to come. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. Uh, We thank you for his power made perfect in our weakness. And as we're getting ready to remember uh, communion, to remember the, the death of Jesus, the burial, the resurrection, I pray that these things would be right in the front of our mind this morning and that we would be encouraged, and we would receive joy, hope, and peace from our Savior. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Hey, in just a few minutes here, we're going to receive communion together. And like I said in the prayer, it is an opportunity to remember the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And it is our opportunity to lean into these things. I bet some of you came in here today with a limp, discouraged, distraught, overwhelmed, barely making it in. This is our opportunity to lean into Jesus and to remember these truths, that even our bad things, he can make good. With his redemption, he can make them good. The cross is a great example of it. Our good things cannot be taken from us because of the resurrection. His power is with us. No one can take that from you. And the best things are yet to come. So you lean into that with whatever you're facing this week. Lean into that 
thank him for his grace. And then I'll come back up in just a few minutes and we'll receive communion together. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Jesus, we lean into your grace right now. We remember it. We're encouraged by it. And we leave this place ready to express it. That we won't be overwhelmed by our groanings and by our sorrows. But we will understand the truth that is in you. And that is that we can have a joy and a hope and a peace. Not based on our changing circumstances. But based on our unchanging Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. It's the ultimate memoriam, and I want to pray. Uh, know that I'll be praying for all of you as you engage with Memorial Day in, in your way, kind of remembering those that have passed before. It's a powerful weekend to kind of lean into those memories a little bit and to honor the people in our lives that have passed, and particularly those in the military that gave up their life for our freedoms. And it's just a good day to kind of sit back, spend some time with family or friends, whoever, uh, remember, and uh, Enjoy some good food, hopefully, right? I think that's part of Memorial Day as well. So go ahead and stand up, and uh, we're going to close with one last song. and We'll continue on in this series next Sunday. Uh, new Sunday School class also starts next Sunday as a companion piece to this. So God bless you guys. You are not swayed by the wind and